It's the Carson McCullough Center's weekly Weave Me. This is the second of three episodes based on an interview with librettist Carrie Scott Wilkerson, composer Robert Chumbly, and baritone singer and opera director Ian Greenlaw. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. Is this a first? I mean, do you guys know of any other operas that feature like this uh, characters who are hearing impaired and don't speak or sing? I don't. It's a first, as far as I know. Yeah. Well, that's exciting, isn't it? I mean, it's scary, but but also it seems to me it's a really exciting thing. I think it's going to be beautiful. The, The silence of these main characters will be dramatically important if I orchestrate the, the accompaniment appropriately so that their silence is, on one hand, uh, profound, uh, but on the other, uh, still musically active. And it's, it's going to be challenging. Yeah, you're right, Nick. Do you know, one of the things I, I try to teach uh, my students is the text and music relationship. Um, there's an Italian saying, prima la musica e poi le parole, first the music and then the words. And I and since then, uh, Salieri wrote an opera with that title. Since then, um, there, there's been much more of a push towards the mute, the words being primary. So in my in my way of looking at it, it's prima le parole, dopo la musica, first the words and then the music which brings this whole business into a really wonderful spotlight because now we're talking about characters that don't use words, but are still communicating these, these uh, not just thoughts, but higher level type of thoughts that the music then gives them their voice. So um, the way uh, music uh, is able to, to bring the emotional inner thoughts of the characters to life when they're, even when they are t- singing or speaking, well, we, get, we still have that with, sing, with um, actors that aren't singing or speaking. So it brings a whole inclusion to an entire community of people that probably have never thought of an opera in that way. I know that I haven't, so it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's brand new, really groundbreaking. So this whole idea, when, when Robert first mentioned it to me, I, I really couldn't believe just the ingenuity involved in even conceiving this as an opera. And then when I got, got into the material, it seems almost the most operatic story I could even imagine from the 20th century. Just really a wonderful story for, for singing. I, I would agree completely. In fact, Scott and I just had a conversation um, last evening about, in today's opera, and especially in my work, this is my third opera, and I'm convinced of this, it's the music that illuminates the text, not vice versa. And... I, I'm a firm believer in that if the words, if the text is not clear, um, simply set, vocally comfortable in its setting, um, then the power of, of the piece is lost because no one's understanding what they're saying. Um, so to me, yes, words are first, music uh, brings them to light. Uh, As you were saying, Scott, you wrote the monologues for the actress portraying Carson McCullers at the 100th birthday celebration in 2017, which was a huge success. And many people told me about how great they thought that was and wanted to see the text of it and so forth. And 
Um, obviously, this project is a lot different, but having worked on both, what have you discovered about Carson McCullers that maybe you didn't appreciate before? I've discovered most straightforwardly that Carson McCullers understands at, at a molecular level the inner life of language. I'm, I'm not trying to be literary or theoretical. I, I mean that there's something about the, the way her characters are indwelt by the language they speak. And, and the reverse is true. There's something also about the way we can recognize in their words exactly who they are. In other words, if they were unnamed somehow and I heard them speaking, uh, e even out of context, perhaps just describing uh, a scene out a window, I, I would know the character. It comes down to question of shaping language that is not merely appropriate to the character, but that somehow flows directly from the character. And studying McCullers' language has helped me, even after the monologue, become a better uh, interpreter of what, sh of what I need to do on the page in order to, to honor her extraordinary language, but also to uh, inflect it in a way that's appropriate for the operatic form. Ian, uh, how about you? What, I mean, what have you learned about Carson McCullers, would you say, uh, in, as being part of this project? Well, a lot of it I've been learning just by working with these two gentlemen, because uh, you've been living with this material a lot longer than I have. But, uh, and I can't say anything more eloquently than what Scott just said. This, I mean, I love hearing you muse and talk about the process. For myself, when I, the main, main takeaway is that Carson McCullers has a, a musicality to her writing. You can, you can tell that she is a musician and she sees music and language as intertwined. The fact that, and on top of the fact that Mick has such a love for music, uh, it's very clear that she's thinking in musical terms as much as literary ones. So it's, it sort of sort of lends itself to the operatic bigger picture in a, in a major way. How about you, Robert? What would you say you discovered? I, I, I would have said the same thing. I learned um, by, you know, I, I've read the three major novels, Member of the Wedding, uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye, and of course this one. In delving into this one um, and in reading what Scott has interpolated from um, McCullough's prose, there is a meter, there is a, a pulse to um, McCullers uh, prose that Scott has replicated beautifully that is so incredibly musical and and Ian's exactly right it's probably because she was a musician first and a writer second and the the pacing and 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 the um, rise and fall the architecture of her sentence structure um, is just profoundly beautiful and profoundly musical and Scott's challenge to, to bring that to life without, without actually using uh, every word and every sentence uh, is, a, is a huge challenge, which he's met brilliantly. Uh, but we've been able to capture McCullough's uh, musical sense of prose, um, I hope. Uh, and so I have a deeper, deeper understanding of her gifts. Okay, Robert, how about you? Uh, what, uh, what passage have you chosen to read and and why have you chosen it in the opera the scene the the love scene between mick and harry by the lake to me is central to her character 
and central to the autobiographical nature of the character, this searching for her sexuality. Um, and the, the veiled eroticism of this passage uh, to me is uh, both subtle and fascinating and obvious at the same time, all which is kind of impossible to achieve. But here it is. She did achieve it. The woods were very quiet. Pine needles covered the ground. Within a few minutes, they had reached the creek. The water was brown and swift, cool. There was no sound except from the water and a breeze singing high up in the pine trees. It was like the deep, quiet woods made them timid, and they walked softly along the bank beside the creek. Don't it look pretty? Harry laughed. What makes you whisper? Listen here. He clapped his hand over his mouth and gave a long Indian whoop that echoed back at them. Come on, let's jump in the water and cool off. Aren't you hungry? Okay, then we'll eat first. We'll eat half the lunch now and half later on when we come out. She unwrapped the jelly sandwiches. When they were finished, Harry balled the papers neatly and stuffed them into a hollow tree stump. Then he took his shorts and went down the path. She shoved off her clothes behind a bush and struggled into Hazel's bathing suit. The suit was too small and cut her between the legs. You ready, Harry hollered. She heard a splash in the water and when she reached the bank, Harry was already swimming. Don't dive yet until I find out if there are any stumps or shallow places, he said. She just looked at his head bobbing in the water. She had never intended to dive anyway. She couldn't even swim. She had been in swimming only a few times in her life, and then she always wore water wings or stayed out of parts that were over her head. But it would be sissy to tell Harry. She was embarrassed. All of a sudden, she told a tale. I don't dive anymore. I used to dive, high dive, all the time. But once I busted my head open, so I can't dive anymore. She thought for a minute. It was a double jackknife dive I was doing. And when I came up, there was blood all in the water. But I didn't think anything about it and just began to do swimming tricks. These people were hollering at me. Then I found out where all this blood in the water was coming from. And I never have swam good since. Harry scrambled up the bank. Gosh, I never heard anything about that. She meant to add on to the tale to make it sound more reasonable, but instead she just looked at Harry. Its skin was light brown, and the water made it shiny. There were hairs on his chest and legs. In the tight trunks, he seemed very naked. Without his glasses, his face was whiter and more handsome. His eyes were wet and blue. He was looking at her, and it was like suddenly they got embarrassed. The water was about 10 feet deep and stepped over on the other bank, and there it's shallow. Let us get going. I bet that cold water feels good. She wasn't scared. She felt the same as if she had got caught at the top of a very high tree and there was nothing to do but just climb down the best way she could. A dead calm feeling. She edged off the bank and was in the ice cold water. She held to a root until it broke in her hands and then she began to swim. Once she choked and went under, but she kept going and didn't lose any face. She swam and reached the other side of the bank where she could touch bottom. Then she felt good. She smacked the water with her fists and called out crazy words to make echoes. 
Watch here. Harry shimmied up a tall, thin little tree. Trunk was limber, and when he reached the top, it swayed down with him. He dropped into the water. Me too. Watch me do it. That's a sapling. She was as good a climber as anybody on the block. She copied exactly what he had done and hit the water with a hard smack. She could swim too. Now she could swim. Okay. They played follow the leader and ran up and down the bank and jumped in the cold brown water. They hollered and jumped and climbed. They played around for maybe two hours. Then they were standing on the bank and they both looked at each other and there didn't seem to be anything new to do. Suddenly she said, have you ever swam naked? The woods were very quiet and for a minute he did not answer. He was cold. His titties had turned hard and purple. His lips were purple and his teeth chattered. I, I, I don't think so. This excitement was in her and she said something she didn't mean to say. I would if you would. I dare you to. Harry slicked back the dark, wet bangs of his hair. Okay. They both took off their bathing suits. Harry had his back to her. He stumbled and his ears were red. Then they turned toward each other. Maybe it was half an hour they stood there. Maybe not more than a minute. Harry pulled a leaf from a tree and tore it to pieces. We better get dressed. All through the picnic dinner, neither of them spoke. They spread the dinner on the ground. Harry divided everything in half. There was the hot, sleepy feeling of a summer afternoon. In the deep woods, they could hear no sound except the slow flowing of the water and the songbirds. Harry held his stuffed egg and mashed the yellow with his thumb. What did that make her remember? She heard herself breathe. Then he looked up over her shoulder. Listen here, I think you're so pretty, Mick. I never did think so before. I don't, I don't mean I thought you were very ugly. I just mean that she threw a pine cone in the water. Maybe we better start back if we want to be home before dark. No, he said, let's lie down just for a minute. He brought handfuls of pine needles and leaves and gray moss. She sucked her knee and watched him. Her fists were tight and it was like she was tense all over. Now we can sleep and be fresh for the trip home. They lay on the soft bed and looked up at the dark green pine clumps against the sky. A bird sang a sad, clear song she had never heard before. One high note like an oboe, and then it sank down five tones and called again. The song was sad as a question without words. I love that bird, Harry said. I think it's Vireo. I wish we were at the ocean on the beach and watching the ships far out on the water. You went to the beach one summer. Exactly, what is it like? His voice was rough and low. Well, there are the waves, sometimes blue and sometimes green, and in the bright sun they look glassy. And on the sand you can pick up these little shells, like the kind we brought back in a cigar box. And over the water are these white gulls. We were at the Gulf of Mexico, these cool bay breezes blew all the time, and there it's never baking hot like it is here. Always snow, Mick said. That's what I want to see. Cold, white drifts of snow like in pictures. Blizzards. White, cold snow that keeps falling soft and falls on and on and on through all the winter. 
snow like in Alaska. They both turned at the same time. They were close against each other. She felt him trembling and her fists were tight enough to crack. Oh God, he kept saying over and over. It was like her head was broke off from her body and thrown away. And her eyes looked up straight into the blinding sun while she counted something in her mind. And then this was the way. This was how it was. Like you say, um, it's such a beautiful evocation of that sort of se sexual awakening. And uh, I love how uh, Mick pretends that she knows how to swim and makes up this story. And as you said, Mick is clearly the autobiographical character in the novel. And isn't it uh, just like Carson McCullers to make up such a story about herself? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullers Center's weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at mccullerscenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullers Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullers' 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Nick Williams, technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Robert Chumbly's reading from The Heart is a Lonely Hunter is in the Library of America's The Collected Works of Carson McCullers. The music you heard during the reading was La Serenor by Vincente Asensio, performed live in Legacy Hall by Dr. Andrew Zone on September 15th, 2019.